This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I have some amazing uh, news this week uh, that the first nuclear plant in built in the United States in decades is now online in Georgia, uh, plant Vogel Unit 3. And it's been making airwaves this week. But one of the pers- one of the people who made that happen, who has been on those airwaves talking about it, uh, is joining us today. It's Vice uh, Chairman of the Georgia Public Service Commission, Tim Eccles. He's been through this process thick and thin. Uh, it's been a really long process over many, many years. And uh, one of the main reasons that it's happened is because of his leadership. Tim, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. It's been a long and winding road, but we're finally here, Unit 3, the first built-from-scratch reactor in over three decades. And it's right here in the great state of Georgia. Well, before we get into why that's so important for the future of nuclear and the future of energy, uh, you were so instrumental in building uh, this or getting this done and getting this across the finish line. What does this mean in a nerdy way for what this means for the energy grid? How what's the load? What's the capacity? How many homes will this power? What are some of the benefits that people should know about? Yeah, it's going to power a half a million homes, this first reactor that came on this week. Then we've got a second one that's coming on in January, around January, another another half a million, 1,100 megawatts each. So compare that to, say, the GE Hitachi reactor that's being built by Ontario Power and soon to be TVA. Those are 300 megawatts each. Yeah, your typical coal plant might be four or 500 megawatts. So when you have something this big, this substantial that runs 24-7, 365, and you can run it for a year and a half before you have to, to reload any fuel, it's just an incredible baseload resource. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, that, that seems like a no brainer, right? Uh, A baseload resource that is double that, or, you know, a little double over a coal plant, uh, obviously has a lot more than a wind turbine or a solar panel has just reliable power 24 seven. What made this so difficult? Uh, and, and, and tell us the story about what happened and why, I mean, why it's such a big deal that it got across the finish line because of, of how hard it was to make it happen. You know, I think the average person that's never been to a power plant, oftentimes these plants are kind of away from everything. You're thinking uh, a building here, building there, but Vogel was a hundred different construction projects simultaneously. I mean, it was a cooling tower. It was a turbine building. Uh, it was, of course, the nuclear island. I mean, enough concrete to run a sidewalk from Atlanta to Seattle. That's how much concrete went into these two units. So it's an enormous amount of, of building materials. 8,000 workers crowded into a fairly 
small site. So it was not a simple construction project like building your house or even building a skyscraper. It was really more along the lines of building something like a spaceship. Uh, it was yeah. that complicated. So many different systems. And the fact that it was big and that you were doing it on scaffolding or uh, that you were using at one time the largest crane in the world wow. to pick up modules and move them, that made it really difficult. So I guess a lot of opponents, and we, we're going to get into that a little bit later too, but a lot of opponents would say, well, if it's that difficult and that complicated, yeah, it provides you know, power to 500,000 homes. Uh, but if it's that complicated to build, why not just do something simpler at a smaller scale? Why does this, why, why not just do something simpler at a smaller scale? I mean, do we want to leave the big projects to China and Russia uh, and, and just let them be the experts out there in this kind of thing? Uh, I mean, Germany's gotten out of the nuclear business. Uh, Japan had issues. I mean, we, we need to keep U.S. technology and superiority going. Now, we don't need to forfeit leadership in, in the area of nuclear energy. So when you've got states like Vermont, Massachusetts closing perfectly fine nuclear plants with super high 90% plus efficiency, and they're not replacing them, the world then begins to look to other places for this technology. And the only way for America to continue setting these international standards for safety and for security is to invest. And this is the first project that's been invested in, you know, in this way in the in the U.S. with this new regulatory process with a DOE loan guarantee and these production tax credits, all these things to be able to make Vogel work because it had to work for the utility. It had to work for our ratepayers. It wasn't something we could just build out of the goodness of our heart. We we had to have this project be financially sustainable. And we certainly are on the bubble of that. It went from a great deal to kind of just a good deal in my mind. But we weren't prepared to let this thing just sit and rust until Jesus came just because, right. say, Westinghouse went bankrupt or we were having trouble or, or there were overruns. We really wanted to finish it. I mean, we knew that China building 26 reactors along their eastern coast, you know, converting their grid basically from coal over, over to nuclear. We knew that they were anxious to take that technology, to export it. Uh, you know, around the world and then lock other countries into these long-term reciprocal trade relationships that in the end hurts U.S. interests, inter uh, U.S. jobs, U.S. exports. So it, it was something that we felt like, man, we really need, we really need to finish this so that, uh, so that America, you know, can remain, you know, a stalwart leader in this area. Yeah, and I mean, we have been the nuclear leader in the world for a very long time, uh, but we've we've started slipping, and obviously, countries like China are quickly gaining, uh, and, and and other countries that are trying to shut down nuclear plants, it's not going very well. I mean, one of the other reasons why that criticism of okay, well, if this is so complicated, why even do it? Uh, what that what that, that doesn't take into consideration is that it would take over three million solar panels to replace one nuclear plant, and so yes, you could do something smaller and simpler. Uh, but it actually doesn't become so much simpler when you realize the scale that has to be done uh, to power 500,000 homes. It's very complicated to power 500,000 homes. And uh, there's no easy way to power 500,000 homes because 
energy is actually pretty complicated and actually pretty difficult to to implement at the scale that we need to for the population we have. Uh, can you explain how this energy or how this nuclear power plant provides energy to just everyday people in Georgia? Is it just Georgia? What's the utility structure? Can you just explain that? Because I think that'll also give our listeners a sense of kind of where you fit in personally to, to this to this issue. Well, folks know what the state of Georgia looks like. And just uh, on that eastern side of our state, on the Savannah River, that borders Georgia and South Carolina, that's where the plant sits. And it's actually directly across the river from the uh, the Savannah River site, which was a Department of Energy site. I think it's 110 square miles. At one time, there were five working nuclear reactors at the Savannah River site. It was an important you know, industrial development site you know, for the Department of Energy doing all kinds of things. And there's a massive cache of plutonium underground there, I'm told. I mean, there are helicopter gunships you know, that guard the place. Well, this Vogel is just across the river from that. So the electrons on this plant certainly cover East Georgia, including Fort Gordon, the Cyber Command Center for the U.S. Army, uh, Augusta, the Masters Golf Course, you think uh, about. Everything up and down that area, they're getting their energy from, from plant Vogel. Uh, and you know, as you think about the Southern Company owning Georgia Power, Alabama Power, Mississippi Power, and in Birmingham, which is kind of a, where our trading floor is for these three utilities, there are workers sitting over there right now, night and day, that basically are making sure these three states have what they need. We share electrons with these three states. Uh, sometimes we sell, we export, sometimes we buy from PJM or other other places. I mean, it's it's no easy thing, you know, to keep a grid going for almost 11 million people and plus the other two, two states. So the Southern Company, who co-own this plant, they really do a fantastic job of running our grid here in Georgia. And our commissioners, and I'm sitting in my commission office right now, we, we really value the Southern Company's leadership role. I mean, their courage, their persistence and finishing this plant was remarkable. I mean, there's, a, there's, I think, a whole bunch of utilities and utility boards that would have said, no, I think we're just going to throw in the towel. We're going to take the, the tax write-off and close this thing down. That's exactly what South Carolina did. And their state was downgraded by Moody's. All seven commissioners lost their job. Scana essentially, you know, was acquired by Dominion. I mean, it was a uh, it was catastrophic financially uh, to cancel it. So while you can think, well, Georgia's gone way over budget and it's taken time, yeah, but look at the long play on this. 60 years, 80 years of electricity and clean electricity, electricity that qualified to make I green agree. hydrogen and get the highest tax treatment of that. So, you know, yeah, it's been... It's been difficult, but I, I I joke around with people going, look, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, that's very high tech with a very cool aperture that opens at the top. That went over budget. The aperture wasn't working. The bridge crossing Northside Drive was double the price. Would you ever think of saying, uh, let's just not finish that? You know, 
and let's just leave an unfinished football stadium sitting here, you know, in perpetuity. No, no, you're going to finish it no matter what it costs right. because it's a magnet. It's an economic development magnet. It is, you know, it is the pride of Atlanta. It brings the Super Bowl. It brings national championships. It is such an important piece. And yeah, it would have been nice to have finished it on time and on budget, but it's too important. And Plant Vogel was too important for us not to finish. Well, I don't know if we're going to be playing Super Bowls at Plant Vogel anytime soon. Well, they could consider it. Uh, they could consider it with how uh, with how exciting this is and uh, with how much of a destination it will start to be, I think, for people to to go see. And, and I had the opportunity to go see it uh, last year, and it was remarkable how close they were. And, and one of the things was that even then, they thought that they were going to be able to get it open sooner than what it ended up being. Can you talk through... I mean, there's been a lot of criticism over the last few years, especially from the media in Georgia about Plan Vogel and its and its delays and uh, and cost overruns. I completely agree with you that it, it's worth it and that this is something that we needed to do and finish and, and sends a strong message. But talking about the cost overruns and the delays, can you explain why those happened and, and kind of give listeners an idea of, of maybe why... Yes, it's not ideal that it happened, but it's it's it, it was a little bit to be expected based on the scenarios that, that uncover themselves. I mean, maybe listeners have built houses before. I mean, I've got my media guy um, is building a house out in the country, and the contractor, you know, is cheating, and it's delayed the house for two years, and he's lost $40,000 of his retirement, uh, you know. My daughter built a house. The guy went bankrupt. I mean, these things happen. And when they do, you don't plan for them. Uh, but when they do, they cost more and it makes it take longer. That's on something as simple as a stick built house that you're going to live in. Something that we've built zillions of in America. We were building the first built from scratch nuclear project uh, with a fairly new design. Yeah, it had been built in China. so. I mean, and it had so many different components. And it was a brand new regulatory process with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, because that process is untested. Why? Because after Three Mile Island, the United States basically uh, canceled, uh, you know, the nuclear bills that they had for the most part, and no one was doing it. We watched the French bill, and we watched the Russians, we watched the Koreans, watched UAE, we watched the Belgians. I mean, we we watched all of these other plants being built, but nothing here. What did we do? We built na natural gas plants. I love natural gas. We've got a whole bunch of them. Half of our generation's natural gas. We built coal plants. We built scrubbers. Uh, now we're paying billions for the ash uh, in these. The the change in price because of the Russian conflict and the boycott of Russian gas from Europe caused an incredible spike, $3 billion spike in just a year and a half. And that's what I try to put in perspective for Georgia ratepayers. It's, yeah, look, Vogel's going to cost you another $5 at this point. But you know what's costing you $16 a month? It's that Russian conflict over there, that boycott on that Russian gas. As we bail out France and Amsterdam and Spain and the UK, um, we're sending American gas over there. It's caused our gas to go up. 
that's had an impact. Look at look at the Vogel impact in relation to that, that we've got our own resource here that will run 365, 24-7, carbon-free. This is incredibly reliable power, adding to two units that have been going there since 87 and 89. So I really think when you're, you know, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a planner, right? I have this crystal ball, you know, that I'm looking into. Uh, I'm looking into this crystal ball right here, and I'm saying, what's, what's carbon pricing going to be in the future? How harsh are future presidents and, uh, and, and Congresses going to be to states that have coal like Georgia? You know, what's natural gas going to be like, you know, in the future? Will there be biomass generation? What's going to happen with wind and solar? And I'm looking into this crystal ball and I'm going, wow, we need to get ready for all this. And we're building a nuclear plant. We need to finish it. This is going to provide great resources. But in a day, if there's carbon pricing, some carbon dividends or whatever crazy scheme somebody may come up with within the future, we're ready because we've got these units that uh, that are providing reliable power and producing zero carbon. There won't be any penalties for us. We'll be getting credits on that. So I, I think it's short-sighted to look at this and say that we should have just used a financial metric. That's it. Right. Just finances. Right. That, that's crazy because there are too many other factors that will inf influence this state and everything else. I mean, if you look at just the the energy that California alone will need to electrify their drainage trucks. That's the trucks that go from the port to the distribution centers up and down California to Las Vegas, all of that 5,000 megawatts of electricity just to electrify those trucks, not counting the additional millions upon millions of Teslas and other vehicles that Californians get and the buses and the school buses and the taxis and the ride shares. This country is going to need a lot of electricity. And you can't close baseload power plants and add electric vehicles at this volume and this scale at the same time. Pick one, but you can't do both. So Georgia is getting ready for what we believe to be a future of great electric need and capacity. And Vogel is the centerpiece of that. Well, that foresight's incredible because, like you said, I mean, the, the demand for electricity is only going up, you know, it's only going to go up substantially, especially if we electrify uh, our transportation. And, and I mean, you've been a huge advocate for, for doing that, but you've also been realist, realistic about kind of what the, the drawbacks or trade-offs that we're going to have to make are. And as you are alluding to, if it's not nuclear, uh, it's oftentimes something worse uh, in terms of what's powering uh, those those electric vehicles and, and charging them up. And obviously there's a place for solar and wind. I, I lived in Seattle where hydropower was uh, a huge part of, of the grid and most of the grid, uh, but obviously that's not possible everywhere. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a true need for baseload energy like nuclear in this country. Now, Georgia, people in Georgia can rest assured that, especially if they're on the eastern side of the state, that they are powering their electric vehicles, their homes, everything with clean, reliable electricity that over time is actually very affordable as well. Uh, you've talked a little bit about the national security perspective. 
um, and, and alluding to those other countries. Can you can you talk about like why if you forget about climate change, if you forget about even reliable electricity for for people in their homes, why this is such a big deal from a national security perspective, and what this means? Uh, and I guess if you were a king for a day, from a national security perspective, what would you do with nuclear going forward? I mean, if I were king for the day, I I would say we've got this Vogel workforce, 8,000 folks, many of these union workers that started out as an apprentice, and by the end of the Vogel project, they're journeymen. They have, you know, they have developed their career. They've, getting a ma- they've gotten a master's degree in welding or electrical or, you know, uh, or, or uh, any kind of metal work. Um, and, and we've got the workforce. They're trained. They're ready. They're tested. They've learned the lessons. Do we dare allow all of that institutional knowledge to just evaporate? You know, are, are, are these people going to have to move to Europe? Are they going to have to move to Asia uh, in order to, to take what they've learned? Well, what our federal government could do is that they could create a very special incentive program uh, that's better than a production tax credit, that's better than a loan guarantee, that is some kind of guarantee of, of, of a reactor, of an AP-1000 that you would build that wouldn't go over a certain price. So yeah, get with Bechtel, get with Westinghouse. What can these now be built at? Let's just say they said um, $18 billion. So the federal government, you know, comes in and says, look, if it's a penny over 20 billion, we're going to cover it out of the treasury. And why would we cover it out of the treasury? So that you, the U.S. could could maintain dominance in the space, but also so that we can make this energy transition. I mean, both the Obama administration and the Biden administration have, have said that new and existing nuclear plants are critical to for Obama, it was an 80% clean energy goal by 2050. Biden is more than that. Uh, uh, yeah. And so how can you accomplish these things if everyone's afraid to do it, right? If, I mean, what state, I mean, I'm one of five commissioners here that had the courage to keep going, but what other states going to step up and embark on a 10-year building process that could be you know, that could have the kind of overruns that we had and the kind of unknowns that we had. I mean, who's going to sign up for that? Most of these commissioners are appointed by a governor. And if the governor says, no, we're not going to do it, then the commissioners probably aren't going to do it. You've got to give them some kind of, you know, safety, a safety net, the risk mitigation. And the best way that our government could do that would be to have a financial backstop and that way it would trigger some orders. Maybe Illinois would jump into this. Maybe Texas would jump into this. Maybe New York now would change their mind. Uh, possibly even California uh, you know, might, might do this. But these states are not going to in, enter into this financial never-never land, uh, not knowing you know, what this thing's going to cost uh, because it... it Frankly, it's just not a prudent course for them to go. I can't, I, I wouldn't blame them. I would not wish what we've gone through on any state. Georgia's paid the learning curve. Our people have paid for this. Not, not the people, you know, in Maine, not the people in New Mexico. Georgians, through their rates, have paid for this. 
And if the United States wants to take this celebration and this great victory that we've achieved and, and see it duplicated, they're going to have to provide a safety net for these states to do it. Where else? They're just going to go maybe to the next new technology and they're going to build that. And there's nothing wrong with Gen 4 reactors and advanced nuclear. I love that. And I hope one day that we build it here in Georgia, but I'm certainly not signing up for any other tip of the spear, first of a kind project because my voters, my voters would run me out of office. That They're not going to let me do this twice. They let me do it once and they're proud of it, but we're not going to make a habit of this. Uh, and that's why I think if the United States wants nuclear to be a significant part of our energy portfolio going forward, which it has to be, it has to be, then they're going to have to come up with a better scheme than what we have right now. Well, and I guess it leads me to another question about kind of the timelines and, and the upfront cost. Do you see that? I mean, you guys did, you, you were the guinea pigs. And I know one of the things we talked about before this call was how there were plans to build a lot more nuclear reactors that changed. And so Westinghouse was planning for 15 and ended up only getting four. And so they had to amortize all those costs across four instead of 15, which obviously raised the cost. Do you see... I mean, you're saying that there needs to be a backstop. You're saying that there needs to be, you know, other states to kind of jump in the water under the same risks, but maybe with better federal policy. Is it truly that it would be that expensive in that long of a timeline if it was tried again, even though we have had you guys do the do the guinea pig uh, stuff for us? Or, or, or would it be cheaper and a little bit shorter of a timeline because we have been, uh, you know, ring, you know, flattening out some of the kinks? Yeah, let's say that we were going to build cabins for ACC members uh, and that we said... That's a good idea. Well, yeah, we're going to... Um, we've got some very cool, you know, cabins with solar and batteries. These are completely off the grid. And uh, and we're going to do a time and materials contract. We think these are going to cost $80,000. But if it goes over, you're going to have to cover that. We're going to let you know if it goes over. Uh, but we think it's going to be $80,000. Um, but if it's not... You've got to pay the difference versus me saying, look, we can do these cabins for $100,000 and we're going to guarantee it with a fixed and firm contract. And if uh, if it goes over, we're going to eat the cost of that. This is this is going to be a hundred grand and you're going to have an off the grid house. I mean, obviously, you're going to pick the fixed and firm contract. And Bechtel, who built our who, who were the, the final contractors for us. To get Bechtel to do a fixed and firm contract for another AP 1000, they're not going to lowball that. They're not going to give a, you know, a, a bargain price for that, in my opinion. They're going to do something where they know for sure they can do it. So if you spent $30 billion on Vogel, yeah, I think we can do it for 21. But mm, let's put some contingency in there. We'll do it for 23. Um, and so. I don't know that a state's going to sign up for a twenty-three billion dollar project. Uh, it just, right? You know, it. it, it I think that that there's a, you know certainly a, a cheaper way you know to do this. I mean, originally you know this was supposed to be about a twelve billion dollar. Um, so it's got to get down there where it's affordable. No one's going to play to to pay list price plus you know plus double um, for this. They're going to want it to make sense financially because 
commissions have this fiduciary responsibility to compare. Let's compare an AP1000 with some gas, with some biomass, with solar, with wind, with a, da with a dam, uh, with batteries, and we're going to look at all these and do what makes sense. They're not going to pick nuclear if it's off the chart. They're just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. But I also, I also know that, you know, nuclear is a big upfront cost, but obviously decreases for the ratepayers and, um, and the whole country over time just because of, of how long you can use this, this energy source for it. It's, it's something that is just a huge upfront cost and then definitely decreases over time. One of the kind of critiques that maybe a more nuclear friendly person would have about this project is that, yeah, these, you know, this nuclear is amazing. We need we need this old technology, especially to keep these old plants open. But we should not build any big traditional nuclear plants like we have. We should only be building small modular reactors, uh, the new the new generation of nuclear. What's your stance on what that balance should look like? Should we be building more traditional reactors? Should we be building new nuclear obviously you're saying that you know someone else should be the guinea pig next time uh but what does that balance look like when you look at the future of nuclear i don't think there will ever be another ap1000 built so my prediction is that there aren't going to be any built so I, I want them to be built because we've got the institutional knowledge and the learning curve's already been paid instead what's going to happen is there's going to be a learning curve for someone else for each of these reactor types whether they're new scale or Giatachi or whatever, there, there's always a learning, anything new. Um, and I mean, the first year a car comes out, right? There's, there's always issues with that first year model. I mean, it, it's just the way it happens. It's unavoidable. Um, but I think because the dollar amount is less, because the reactors are safer, because they use less water, there's a lot of reasons to build a Gen 4, a lot. And I think that will be the road that most states take if they're going to build nuclear. They're going to pick one of those designs and they're going to move forward with it. And eventually those designs will be perfected because we're going to need hundreds of reactors, hundreds, thousands uh, in the future if we're going to close every fossil plant eventually. And that's going to require someone to go first. You know, and it looks like TVA is going to go first with the GE Itachi. So I think other states may be willing to, you know, let's let TVA pay the learning curve on this. They're going to watch TVA start building these things and TVA will perfect it. And then Illinois may sign up or, you know, Utah may sign up or some other some other state. And we will in 20 years be in a really, really good place on all of this. And Georgia may jump in in another this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 10, 10 years or so. I'm not going to jump in uh, until TVA paid the learning curve uh, because I've just, you know, I'm still stung, you know, from, you know, from, from this job that, that we just did. I think the only thing that could possibly change this is if 
either the government did the backstop or if the U.S. military, for some reason, said, you know what, we, we want our bases to be resilient and we're going to make these investments with nuclear in our base communities uh, and then we're going to build these and we'll sign a PPA with the utility. So that could happen. You could have the Army build a reactor. The Navy build, the Navy's already great at building reactors on subs and, and battleships and aircraft carriers. You could have the military build it with their federal money out of their federal budget. And then Georgia Power could just come along and say, we'll sign a 30 year PPA at this negotiated price. And then that, that's a way to kind of de-risk it as well. Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense, and and I feel like one of the benefits of of this new generation of nuclear, and obviously it would have been great if this happened during the traditional side of things too, because as we know, we should have been building for the last few decades more nuclear plants. But uh, you've had Senator Ossoff, Senator Warnock, Governor Kemp, two Democrats and a Republican, other Republicans in the U.S. House in Georgia, and obviously in the state, your your Republican elected official. There's been massive cross-collaboration uh, across political ideologies on this project. That wasn't always the case on nuclear, and not even that long ago. Uh, and it definitely isn't the case all the time uh, at the national level still. Uh, but it's starting to become pretty bipartisan that nuclear is a big, important part of the future. How have you seen that shift, and, and do you see that being a, a needed change for the landscape of energy right now? There's no mistake about it that this bipartisan political support is absolutely critical when you're building something that takes a long time. Look no further than the Yucca Mountain Project in Nevada that at one time had the support of the Nevada people, but that changed. And when you start losing U.S. senators and governors on projects, it's, it's going down uh, and you have to keep that support. and. Part of the reason we were able to keep the support is because we had a union workforce. I am totally convinced that had this not been a union workforce, that we would have lost the support of our senators. Even Stacey Abrams, who ran against Governor Kemp, she never criticized Vogel. I mean, she jumped on Governor Kemp on everything, you know, uh, little tiny things, but never on Vogel. Vogel was inoculated from political criticism because of IBEW, Building and Trades, Sheep Workers Union, the 8,000 union workers, that's a lot of families. That's a lot of car payments. It's a lot of F-150 payments. It's a lot of college tuitions. It's a lot of insurance plans. That workforce, to me, is the Thing that enabled us to finish it because when we ran into problems and whenever you are doing something and you run into problems with it, somebody's going to try to take advantage of it politically. But that never happened with Plan Bogle. And so, you know, had Yucca Mountain been able to keep the U.S. senators there, Harry Reid and others on board, it would not have run into problems. And it probably would be the repository where we were putting, the, you know, the final spent fuel right now, which is one of the biggest criticisms that people have with nuclear energy. 
What about the waste? Where are we going to put it? Well, we had a place. We had the best geologic piece of land in America. We've already drilled a tunnel through it. We know that it's suitable. But because of the lack of political support, uh, maybe, maybe we should have had a huge union workforce out there. Maybe that would have done it. But uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason, politicians in Nevada uh, grew weary and and when it lost its support, it it ended. So right now, here we sit on the back of back of my plant on a cement pad since since cast giant, highly engineered cast that cost two hundred and fifty million dollars to build all of that just to take nuclear spent fuel out of the pool and put it into a safe place that will last one hundred years. We're we're doing that because politics went awry in Nevada. And so Uh, it is so important to keep these folks on the same page. And that's why Illinois and blue states, blue states are absolutely critical to a nuclear renaissance in America. If blue states don't adopt it, it's not going to happen. It's got to be bipartisan because it cannot withstand, it cannot withstand, you know, a political criticism on an ongoing basis is it's too much. Well, I think you're seeing the the battle between Texas and California, how partisan that energy conversation is and how, how damaging that is for, for both of them. Uh, you've got people in, in California who think solar and wind are the, the savior of, of, of all, uh, basically a god, and you've got people in Texas who think oil and gas are a god and they're going to say not, no to any other energy source that doesn't fit their political ideologies. And because there's no other side to kind of push back that has any real chance to, to, to have a political impact, uh, they're getting really bad policies. And instead of working in a bipartisan way, which there's not really an incentive to, uh, they're working in a partisan way and it's having a really negative impact on everyone else. But in Georgia, it's turning into a battleground state, Republicans and Democrats working together to get nuclear across the finish line. I'm sure behind closed doors, it's not as simple as what I just said, but it's happened. And it's it's remarkable what the cross-ideological uh, conversations can have in terms of something as simple as our ability to turn on our lights every every day and how that reliability and, and, and just the clean energy that this power plant uh, and, and the next one that is going to come online soon at Plant Vogel, the, the two units that are coming online, though that's just a massive win for the state and for the whole country. And it, it should serve as a model to the rest of the country and the rest of the world that when you're working across that political divide, you actually get really good results. And, and you've done that with your colleagues. Uh, what have you seen on nuclear politically that has started to change? Because it wasn't that long ago where even a Georgia Democrat uh, if they were elected at the federal level, would be pretty anti-nuclear. I mean, you're seeing Senator Cory Booker uh, a few years ago came around on nuclear. Even AOC is starting to like not be 100% anti-nuclear. Uh, why is that changing? And is that change going to spur a whole new impact or a whole, a whole new investment in nuclear in this country? It is going to change it for sure. I, th- I think these officials are getting cover from the top, right? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm a Republican. I'm not a, a fan of, of President Biden, obviously. Uh, you know, he, he's not in my party, but he has provided incentives. He has, he has, quote, blessed 
nuclear energy. His Department of Energy uh, secretary has blessed uh, nuclear energy. And that even caused Gavin Newsom in California to take a step back, right, with Diablo Canyon. Uh, so I think New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, I, I think they have regretted their hasty actions on, uh, on nuclear. So having cover from the top matters. But the other thing, green hydrogen is almost like bacon. It makes everything better. Uh, and there is a fascination with hydrogen, with green hydrogen in particular, and the fact that the Biden administration is giving green hydrogen made at nuclear plants the same treatment as if it's made at a wind farm or at a solar farm. Uh, that treatment, that equitable treatment, sends a very strong message. I had an Australian mining company approach me at a green hydrogen conference in New York City the other day and say, we're looking for 12 nuclear sites in America to do, you know, uh, to have 100 acres on that, those sites, you know, and, and to have a 300 megawatt facility to make green hydrogen at 12 nuclear sites in America using overnight power. But that's a pretty wow. incredible wish you know, for a company. And I heard this at the World Nuclear Exhibition in 2021 in Paris, where they were no longer talking about nuclear just being for energy. They were talking about it use, using it for, for district heating, for green hydrogen there. And that's the French. That's the French talking about it. Um, so I think that this multi-purpose, you know, ability that nuclear energy now is being recognized for is going to win the day. Uh, and I think you're going you're because every time you add something else it can do, you pick up some more fans, right? right? Um, and that's exactly what's happening out there right now. And you couple that with the left's hatred for fossil fuel, both coal and now it's wicked stepsister natural gas. You, you, you take the hatred for that and the desire to come up with something that can replace it and provide the voltage that's needed and the overnight power that's needed because we all like to be able to have electricity at night when the sun goes down and when the panels aren't working. You, you take those two things and combine it, and I think the left has just said, I think, I think this might be the best possibility. And, and given that we now have these Gen 4 reactors, they use less water, safer, smaller, they're this, they're that. And all of a sudden, these things can do no wrong. Right. And I think the, tr the, the conversation about trade-offs is probably the most important one, which is that, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, with energy, there is no perfect way to provide power to people's homes. And, and especially if it's intermittent, it, it becomes a lot more complicated with the trade-offs uh, that we have and, and what we need to backstop that with. We have real opportunities around nuclear. And, and one of the things that we won't have time to get into today is just the regulatory process in this country has made it really hard to build nuclear. Uh, on top of the political uh, divide, there's there's a the nuclear regulatory nuclear regulatory commission and all the DOE EPA all the requirements that are that are there for for nuclear plants. There's a reason it takes so much longer to build a nuclear plant in the United States than it does in other places. And I'm not saying that we need to to have the same low standards as other places. Uh, but there, there is a middle ground there to be had. And, and I know the Democrats and Republicans are working on that together. 
when we're looking towards the future, that sort of solution in terms of regulatory streamlining will have to be a part of, of the dialogue. My my final question for you is is as you look forward to that you know sixty to eighty years when from now when nuclear uh, power plant Vogel Unit Three is coming to the end of this term, like what do you see the energy landscape looking like in this country? Obviously, so much can happen and so much new technology can be uncovered between now and then. And you that there's a a huge caveat and an asterisk to what you're going to say, but if you could have a crystal ball into that far into the future with today's technology and what you know. What, what do you think is going to power our world? Yeah, I'm going to get my crystal ball back out here and, and take a look. Um, and I, you know, I definitely see uh, a future where fossil fuels have pretty much gone away uh, because of the pressure, uh, you know, placed upon them. I mean, maybe they survive in some kind of capacity. Maybe carbon capture comes about that enables, say, natural gas to survive. Um, that's that's a possibility. You know, that's going to require building a lot of CO2 lines like they're building in South Dakota right now and talking about building in other places. But if the coal has gone away and the gas has been crippled, let's say, you're going to have to have a lot of Gen 4 reactors that are running out there. And in 60 years, they will be totally perfected. It'll be, it'll, it'll be just, you know, uh, it, it'll be easy to do a fixed and firm contract then because all the risk will be gone. Because you'll have folks like TVA that, you know, this got 20 of them running and you'll have other states. And so I think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of hydrogen class A trucks driving up and down. There will be, you know, there'll be green hydrogen made at nuclear plants at night with electrolyzers. And, um, and I, I, see, I see a much more efficient and smart energy grid out there where, uh, where people themselves are using less and getting the same, you know, get, getting the same quality of life. I just think that American ingenuity and technology is going to allow us to be able to live better, more prosperous, more comfortable lives. But it requires this paradigm shift. And we're, Georgia has basically set the stage for it. It's why it was so important for us not to give up. We were catalyst. Now others will take the baton and they will run with it. And, you know, TVA and maybe Illinois and others will, you know, will do these things and usher America in to this clean energy renaissance that we really believe that we can have to power our grid 24 hours a day. One, if we, as we look towards the future, it's going to be about a story of resilience, uh, mental resilience, political resilience, economic resilience, all to get uh, environmental resilience and climate resilience. And that's what you did here in Georgia with Unit 3 and Plan Vogel. Uh, incredibly grateful for your leadership. And I know that this is just one big step in, in our nation's quest for cleaner and reliable energy. Because uh, like you said, it can't go at the odds of, of people's livelihoods and ability to have a high quality of life. You have made sure that Georgia 
Georgians and, and the ratepayers there have a high quality of life while also having clean, reliable energy. And like I said, set the stage for a resilient future in so many ways and, and, and really served as a model uh, for those who are, who are looking to have a tough political battle to get something done that is right. Um, it's not always easy. And I know that you've been at the crosshairs of a lot to get this across the finish line. So a huge congratulations to you, Southern Company, to the state of Georgia uh, on this huge victory. And, uh, and just thank you for your leadership. Thanks for being here. Love to have folks hear more about it in my podcast, Energy Matters with Commissioner Eccles. Just subscribe to it anywhere that you get your podcast. We'll push it out to you every Tuesday. Well, it's a great podcast. I've had the honor of being on it a few years ago and uh, just a lot of amazing insights into the future of EVs and, and nuclear energy and solar power. And you, you're at the crosshairs of a lot of this stuff. I know we focused a lot on nuclear today, uh, but for those who are interested in and Commissioner Eccles, uh, you know, really insightful viewpoints on other topics as well. And this one, uh, definitely feel free to check out that podcast and, and we'll put it in the link to the show as well. Uh, anything else for the good of the order today, Commissioner? Appreciate all that you're doing, you know, to take this, you know, this next generation and to help them see that this technology is nothing to be afraid of, that we can be, you know, we can move into this safely you know, with, with confidence and that there's great value to America being at the head of the class. Commissioner Tim Eccles, thank you so much for being here and we'll definitely have you on again. Thank you. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.